I'm John Banther, and this is Classical Breakdown. From Classical WETA in Washington, we take you behind the music. In this episode, I'm joined by Classical WETA's Nicole Lacroix, and we're diving into one of the most popular and iconic American works, Appalachian Spring by Aaron Copland. There is so much to learn about this masterpiece, its ballet and collaborative origins, Copland's inventive use of an unknown folk tune at the time, and the origins of its title. O oh, Appalachian Spring, I gained the ledge, steep, inaccessible smile that eastward bends and northward reaches in that violet wedge of Adirondacks. That, Nicole, is a verse from The Dance, a poem by Hart Crane, and it's also the inspiration for the name of Copeland's work, Appalachian Spring. And this title actually wasn't his idea. It was Martha Graham's, who was the choreographer, as it was originally a ballet. Copeland didn't even know the name until the first rehearsal when he showed up and asked her, well, what are you going to call this thing? And she says, well, Appalachian Spring. It's uh, from a poem. And he says, great. Does it have anything to do the ballet and the poem together? And she says, no, <laughs> it's it's I just like the name. And that's how the, the name came about. And many people would come up to Copeland and and talk about how they heard certain things in his music that perhaps he wasn't aware of when he was writing. Here's what he said to an audience during his 81st birthday concert. And over and over again nowadays, people come up to me after seeing the ballet on the stage and say, Mr. Copeland, when I see that ballet and when I hear your music, I can just see the Appalachians and feel things. <laughs> I've begun to see the Appalachians myself a little bit. (laughs) I love that. We can all kind of read into it in our own way. That's the thing about this music, I think. Yes, and we already have to kind of address something because I say Appalachian Spring, and you say? Appalachian Spring. And, uh, well, I guess they're both right. They're both right, and, well, for me, my family's from Western North Carolina, so I can't... I, I'm not physically able to say it the way you say it. I have to say Appalachian. But, and there's always, you know, an argument of who, who was right. And Copeland said it one way, others say it another. And I think that's kind of to go a little bit deeper on it. It's a beautiful thing about this work and the universality and the appeal of it because these mountains, they stretch through the East Coast over a thousand miles. Think of all the different dialects, even different languages and cultures and everything. And we're all coming at this from a different angle. So, of course, we're all going to we're going to have different ways of saying it. Well, apparently, Copeland himself, I think it was in 1972, said something to the effect of, oh, my goodness, I've been pronouncing it wrong for 30 years. <laughs> Nobody wants to correct Copeland, right? Right. So that's where the, the title comes from, Martha Graham, the choreographer. Now, the big musical theme, Simple Gifts, we know that widely today, but it was hardly known at all outside of the Shaker community since an elder wrote it in 1848. Copeland used this and other American folk tunes because I read him say, he said, um, the principal attraction for me in a folk song was that it was an easy way to sound American. And so I found myself making use of that material. It's such a simple statement, but it's that's often overlooked in music, just using the music of the land, of the people, similar to 
Dvorak, as we learned in our Symphony Number no. 9 episode, also Florence Price in um, her episode, using the tunes of, of the land. Folk music also gives that sense of space that we associate with Copland's later works, that idea of the prairie or of uh, the new world. And because it's the tunings of the folk instruments, the fourths and the fifths and, and the accompaniment and so forth, the strumming, the dance rhythms, all of that gives that, that wide open sky feeling that you get from Copland's music. Especially in the 1930s and 40s, because even before this, his music before this time was different. It was more angular, more contemporary sounding is one way to describe it. More European, perhaps. That's, yes. And Copeland having this very American sound and spirit in this piece, it wasn't just Copeland. It was really, I think, a, a collaboration among many Americans because this premiered at the Library of Congress in 1944, won him the Pulitzer Prize in music the following year. It was very, very popular. But we have many people involved here. Elizabeth Sprague Coolidge, she was a big patron in music at the time. She commissioned Copeland to write a ballet for Martha Graham, an American ballet legend who was looking for Copeland to write in a distinctive American sound and style. Do you know how much he got paid for it? How much? 500 bucks. $500. And, and I imagine for inflation, that's what, something like a couple thousand dollars. Right. And he'd already written two very successful ballets, Rodeo yes, and uh, uh, Billy the Kid. And it seems like this was a project of love for everyone. Everyone involved was trying to create something because, for instance, Graham was putting together a series of ballets on American themes, trying to bring that into ballet, titles like Frontier, American Document, and American Provincials. And she got the title from an American poet, Hart Crane, who died years before in 1932. She came up with the choreography, the name, of course, and even gave Copeland direction. In a letter, she said, This is a legend of American living. It is like the bone structure, the inner frame that holds people together. This has to do with living in a new town, someplace where the first fence has just gone up. And I think we really hear that in this music, new town. The first fence is just going up. And in the set... She uh, used the artist and American artist and designer Isamu Noguchi, and she asked him for a shaker rocker. Also in the set is the fence. Yes. There's a fence. There's a, the, the wall of the house, and that's about it. But that fence represents the new world. It represents hope. It, it, it represents love. It represents children, new life. It was a very small, if you've ever been to the Coolidge Auditorium, it's a very small uh, stage, especially if you put in the 13 musicians in the pit. So there wasn't a lot of room uh, for a, a very fancy set. Martha Graham's scenario for the ballet premiere tells us everything we need to know about the work, about the ballet. Part and parcel of our lives is that moment of Pennsylvania spring when there was a garden eastward of Eden. Spring was celebrated by a man and woman building a house with joy and love and prayer, by a revivalist and his followers in their shouts of exaltation, by a pioneering woman with her dreams of the promised land. 
it's a beautiful idea and story, and it speaks for itself. The original ballet was for 13 musicians, a small chamber orchestra. The orchestral suite is what we most often hear today. It stays true to the ballet, and Copeland did, of course, he removed some bits that were more more for choreography. The publisher for the orchestral suite wrote that Copeland condensed this version of the ballet, retaining all essential features, but omitting those sections in which the interest is primarily choreographic. And what you were saying about the set earlier is, I mean, it's, it's a beautiful set. We'll have a video on the show notes page. And we'll be going through some of the plot points in the ballet as well, because it can give you, hopefully as it gave me, uh, a new perspective on the music. Copeland also gave descriptions for each movement. So, Nicole, how does all of this start, and who are the characters in the ballet? Very slow. Introduction of the characters one by one in a suffused light. So the, it's early light. The sun is coming up. And the first person who comes on is the preacher. And then you have the young man who touches the house, I guess for luck. And then... You also have the young woman who also touches the house. You have the pioneer woman. She's an older mother-like figure who has experience of life. And then you have the four followers. And looking at the scenario, at the set, they reminded me of The Handmaid's Tale. Okay. The way the the costume was. Their little bonnets. Yes. Yeah. There's a lot we can kind of hear in this in the opening movement, right? Although it is very sparse and plain, he's using arpeggios, uh, just outlining here A major, A, C sharp, and E. And it gives this very, a very comforting sound, but also when there's a little bit of tension, there's great direction in the sound, too. He's doing so much with so little. Got to tell you a story here that I heard from Leonard Slatkin on YouTube. When Aaron Copeland was 87 years old, 1987, a group of people visiting him, he had Alzheimer's and he couldn't speak. He suddenly got out of his chair, he went to the piano, and he played the first six notes of Appalachian Spring. Wow. And I think that is so important because it is the germ of this entire amazing work miraculous work. That's amazing. It stays, I mean, it stays with you. And you hear these stories of people with Alzheimer's dealing with this and hearing music brings them back or offers some kind of comfort or, as you hear with with Copeland, just getting up and going to the piano and playing these notes. Yeah, which means they are significant. They are the building blocks of the entire piece. They are the building blocks of the shaker melody that we hear. They're the building blocks of the uh, dancing that we'll hear, the, you know, the, the revival dancing. Those simple intervals kind of explode at the beginning of the second movement, right? It's a sudden um, burst. Well, as you said before, you read the description that Copeland gave for the first movement, very slowly, introduction of the characters, one by one, in a suffused light. The second movement, he writes, fast, allegro, sudden burst of unison strings and A major arpeggios starts the action. A sentiment, both elated and religious, gives the keynote to this scene. And you can hear that in the opening here. It's it's a beautiful moment, I think, in, in classical music. And 
a key point here, this elated religious sentimentality, because he uses something that we are suckers for, you know, in the United States. We love hymns, patriotic or religious or, or other. We love these hymns, and he juxtaposes those arpeggios and bright moving sounds that you described with this very, very um, kind of symbolic hymn. I'm just sitting here doing nothing, and it makes me feel accomplished and proud for some reason. (laughs) And it makes me think of war. I can imagine that feeling very innate. It's 1944. It's getting towards the end, especially 1945, when he would win the Pulitzer for um, for this work of just, we're almost there kind of feeling. That fanfare for the common man. Yes. Yeah. And I love the excitement, that kind of frontier exploration with that hymn over top. We go to the third movement, moderate, moderato, duo for the bride and her intended, scene of tenderness and passion. I like this one. This one has some very, very different sounds and ideas to it that I'd like to hear your thoughts on, Nicole. So from the beginning, let's listen to just the opening here of the third movement. Do you know what I hear in this part? I hear this character. It's it's the man. Honestly, I see Chevy Chase with like a hammer and he's trying to build this fence and it's very rickety. You know, he's new. He's just trying to, to build a house and start a family. And then he's interrupted and he sees this, maybe his bride or, or something beautiful out in the distance in the landscape. And there's that beautiful moment. Then he's brought back into it trying to put this, trying to put this fence together. He's got some wonderful dancing, too, some wonderful choreography. Both men do, he and the preacher. I hear Prokofiev's Romeo and Juliet. Okay. In the innocence, that youth that Prokofiev describes so well in his ballet, I hear it here again. This is a young man, as you say, full of vigor and energy. And uh, she's just this little innocent woman who's totally in love with him. Apparently, Martha Graham was very much in love with uh, the gentleman who played Ethan Hawke, who played uh, the husband. They got married. Okay, yeah, there you go. (laughs) But this passion that they have, it's very Romeo and Juliet. And I wonder what you think about the sound a a little bit later as well, Nicole, because we have that sound. And then in the same movement, this feeling... Because this is a very, it is a passionate sound, but also following with Romeo and Juliet, it's not that passionate sound, you know, when we think of 19th century Europe, Tchaikovsky, Romeo and Juliet. Although I can see the lineage. 
you can see, you know, a little bit of the Tchaikovsky-style ballet where the man is uh, lifting the woman. That's what I see there. Okay. I love it. And the movements here, they kind of flow one into the other. Some have a more resolute ending. Some flow right into the next. That's to say there isn't a big pause in between movements like you would find um, in a symphony. And from this tender passion, we go to the fourth, quite fast, the revivalist and his flock, folksy feeling, suggestions of square dances and country fiddlers. They remind me of butterflies, the four followers, the four maidens. It's, again, like Romeo and Juliet, it's the young maidens just dancing around the preacher. Okay. I didn't think, I didn't, I hear that now with what you're saying, because there's the 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 preacher and his congregation, these, um, the four women in, in the ballet, and they're, yeah, it's that same innocence, and we're still hearing a lot of what you were describing with the arpeggios, outlining the chords, those kinds of sounds, just now very punctuated and very, very bright. In fact, this piece, it's very, very bright, very effervescent sounding. This isn't Brahms. This isn't Tchaikovsky or Beethoven. It's not It's not dreary and dark or very, very deep or in Germanic. sound. Germanic. That's, that's the word. Things are very, very bright in their, in their timbre. Also, what gives it this folksy feeling, that square dance? You've got that wood block that also comes in later, but it's it's on the it's on the backbeat. It's like there's some syncopation, and it gives it that dance feeling. And for me, whenever I hear that, of course, it's also the sound, the sounds of horse hooves on a hard surface. I love that sound, and I hear that here. And it's again, I think it's part of that new world exploration that he is bringing in when Martha Graham said. New town. The first fence is just coming up. And of course, how do you get stuff in? You had to take it in by horse. And remember, his other ballets were, were sort of Western things with a lot of horses, the Rodeo, for example. That's right. <laughs> that whole galloping and square dancing, all that rhythm is innately American. When you say the backbeat, can you explain that a little bit? Yeah. In simple terms, you can think of you know, clapping on two and four as opposed to clapping on one and three. One's kind of square, right? And the other one is more in the groove. Or as he presents it a lot here, just on the off beats. There's times where there's syncopation with notes that are held out, but there's also just that syncopation of hitting the woodblock or a drum on the end of each beat. One and two and three and four. And that gives you that, that dance feeling to it. There's another thing that Copeland does that I think gives the music a groove or makes it a little bit different, and that is his asymmetrical rhythm changes. So when you think of something from going very fast to going very slow, you can do it by literally just kind of like dividing in two. You're now playing just twice as slow or twice as fast. Copeland will slow things down by like 40% or like by an odd number, something like, like this. It's a nice little dance break sound, too. 
And if I were the choreographer, I would hear that and I would say, oh, the preacher gets to do that part. <laughs> That's 100% what I'm thinking. Exactly. That brings us to the the fifth movement, Still Faster, Supido Allegro, Suddenly Fast, Solo Dance of the Bride, Presentiment of Motherhood, Extremes of Joy and Fear and Wonder. A lot of different sounds and characteristics there in just a few seconds. It was one of the things about Martha Graham was that she didn't want to actually give details or tell a story. What she wanted to do was, because her father was a psychologist, was talk about or portray the inner life through movement and music. And so this young woman has just been preached at by the preacher saying life is terrible and all these awful things could happen to you and the devil's going to come after you if you if you were not good. So he scared her. And the older woman is saying, yes, life can be difficult. I mean, good heavens, there's war all around us. Life can be hideously difficult. But motherhood is important. And also, do I want to be a little innocent like the young girls who were surrounding the preacher? Or do I want to grow into womanhood? And that is really scary. Do I want to take up that responsibility? Martha Graham believed that movement came from the solar plexus, which is where singing comes from, which is where the voice comes from, and which is where the birth begins. So all of that is is very organic in what this music is expressing. I mean, if I had one word to describe this movement, it would be whirlwind. It is a whole mix of emotions. It has that kind of inquisitive, wait, what's happening? What's going on in the beginning? To then accelerating into this dance, accelerating maybe into thinking of like, oh, it's the fast track of life. And it's it's a whirlwind. And it's there's a lot of starting and there's a lot of stopping in the music. And I think what gives it also the whirlwind feeling, Nicole, is how he presents us with the music in terms of literally the direction of which notes are, are being played, because there's a lot of a lot of contrasting motion right here. Things are going up while other things are going down. They're crossing over. It's just, I mean, it's just a whirlwind. She's turned into Bridezilla. On the frontier. There's another instrument that he brings in, and he does it sparingly with the percussion, and that is the xylophone. It's one of my favorite moments where the xylophone is just kind of punctuating. And then again, we have the syncopation, not in the sense of a backbeat here, but towards the ends of phrases, da-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum, there's a lot of being on the offbeat where you feel like you're you're tripping or you're falling forward into the next measure into the next big big downbeat which gives you more of that whirlwind fast track feeling that brings us to the the sixth movement which is which is a little bit different he describes it as very slowly as at first transition scene to music reminiscent of the introduction this is almost like a, an intermission where we're just kind of 
sitting back for a moment, absorbing all the material that we just heard. And it's also nice because the music is very bright sounding and it's a little fatiguing. This isn't a kind of sound I would want to hear for, you know, a full hour. And it kind of brings everything back down. There's contrast in the speed of the music, but also in the timbre. It's a little bit darker, a little more solemn. I guess reminding us of that early morning sunrise of the opening. And that takes us to the seventh movement. Calm and flowing. Scenes of daily activity for the bride and her farmer husband. There are five variations on a shaker theme. The theme, sung by a solo clarinet, was taken from a collection of shaker melodies compiled by Edward D. Andrews and published under the title, The Gift to be Simple. The melody borrowed and used almost literally is called Simple Gifts. very gentle, again, very sparse with a percussion, just these kind of bright, shimmering accents. And very reminiscent of the beginning as well, especially starting off with the clarinet, which he apparently thought was very pure in sound. And for me, it's got a human quality to it, a Mm -hmm. human voice quality to it, the warmth and timbre of the human voice. And apparently one of the reasons he liked this uh, Shaker hymn so much was because it's about dancing. It fits right in because you can play it very, very slow and you can play it very, very fast. You can play it legato, very connected. You can play it very punctuated, very hard on the articulations at the beginning of each note. And listen to how he uses the theme here. And also with the percussion in the harp, it sounds like we're seeing almost like a a time lapse. Things are moving very, very fast, and we're observing this, and the percussion and harp, it's acting kind of like a clock. And this is where it's so relatable, the gift to be simple. That's all we want. We just want to have, we want to be happy and just live live simply. We're on this rock flying through the vacuum of space into, into nothingness. And just to be simple and to, and to be humble is something that I think we all strive for. And it's that universality in the appeal. Again, think of all the cultures, languages, and everything that spreads the Appalachian Mountains. And you have that appeal of everyone in the country, but also here in just that universal, maybe human trait of just living simply. Well, think about our own feelings now during the pandemic. We have developed a facility for gratitude. That's right. How grateful we'll be when we can gather together again, uh, when we can go to a live concert, when we can enjoy the things that we took for granted before, what we have come to appreciate is indeed the simple gifts, putting food on the table, yeah, having people be healthy. And one thing to be grateful for is the way it does open our eyes 
to some of these great masterworks of the past. Absolutely. And we've heard it, the Simple Gifts theme, very smooth and very lyrical. The brass comes in, the trumpets, it's very, then we have that more pointed sound to it. And then we have a huge full orchestra moment where we're, everyone's together. And the sound is, I think it's basically one of the biggest in the work so far. And it's also still very, very bright in that sound, that timbre we were talking about. Full orchestra, but it's still very, very high sounding. That'd be a perfect place for someone to put in some huge cymbal crashes or, or something like that. But he leaves it. He leaves it as it is. American determinism. That's what I hear there. We're going to build and rebuild and, you know, we'll put up all sorts of s suburbs and, you know, we'll have the greatest generation. That's what I hear. And it also reflects back to that other passage um, that where the hymn came in, where you also had that feeling of uh, not martial, because that would be the symbols, but of, of uh, the fanfare for the common man. You're 100% right, because with the addition of symbols, that takes the folk element out of it for us in this country, because there's not a lot of folk music where I mean, there's crash symbols or, or, or even smaller finger symbols or something like that. So it's it speaks to us exactly as you're as you're describing. This is the big moment, the big the big payoff, the gift to be simple. And then we go to the eighth movement, and we're coming down from this. And it's kind of almost an outline of life. This is another kind of longer description. He writes, "Moderate. The bride takes her place among her neighbors. At the end, the couple are left quiet and strong in their new house." Muted strings intone a hushed, prayer-like chorale passage. The close is reminiscent of the opening music. And there's a couple of things we can read into that. One, when he says muted strings, strings, string instruments can have mutes just like you find on for, for brass instruments, but they're usually kind of small, hard rubber bits that they would place on the bridge, the part holding up the strings on the violin, for instance. It dampens the sound, dampens the vibrations, and it changes the characteristic just a little bit. So if you just play soft, as soft as you can, that's going to be a different sound than playing with maybe a little more bow, but the sound being dampened. There's a little bit of a different characteristic to it. But when I hear this music, Nicole, it's like we've watched this scene play out in our imaginations or in some other way. And now we've seen those activities, those life milestones. And it's almost as if when I see the bride takes her place among her neighbors, it's as if she slowly slows down movement and freezes. And it's like a painting again. Like we've, we've seen a painting at a museum and we have imagined all these things. And now it's time to, to go. Now think of Grant Wood as a, as a big influence. You know what this reminds me of? When you were a little kid and you were playing during the summertime with your friends and it was getting towards twilight and your mother would call you in for dinner and the dog would come running with you and then everything would 
just the, the darkness would come and there would be quiet. That's what it reminds me of. Yeah. I mean, that's literally, it's, the, it's this depiction of, of Twilight. That's another way to, to listen to it because it is very serene. And there's also a bit more resolution here. In other movements, we've heard some very simple lines that don't necessarily fully resolve. Here we hear the music being more closed off and it's finishing. It's it's more resolute. And the very end of it has an instrument that I think brings it all together. That glockenspiel, again, is very sparse with it, just that little ding. It's very fairy tale um, sounding in my, in my mind. And, of course, he ends it with the beginning. Yes. We, it ends as it began. Mm-hmm. A full circle. There's a lot you can read into with this. And that's kind of the fun, knowing the story or not knowing the story or making up your own story as you go along. We all have that feeling when you move to a new city, you take on a new challenge, a new thing, and you build all the things to sustain and to accomplish that, and those big milestones, and then you fall into into the routine of it in a good way, I think, and then it, you know, it closes out this way. So I think everyone's experienced this kind of feeling before. And also hopeful of peace. Hopeful of peace because... This is the end of World War II when this is um, premiered, when the people start seeing it in 1945. And, of course, I wasn't alive. We weren't alive in that time. But just I can't imagine the feeling of this years and years long war and then coming home and then finally get on to living. And we can hear influences of Copeland in other composers, too, like Bernstein. I think there's some West Side Story rhythms that we hear in this music as well. Well, Copeland, I guess, was a, a mentor of Bernstein's. As I told you before, I heard uh, Prokofiev. And think of the ballets that were around that time. So Prokofiev's Romeo and Juliet in 1938, Oklahoma. This is very reminiscent of Oklahoma, 1943. Bernstein's Fancy Free in 1944, so the same year. Billy the Kid uh, by Aaron Copeland himself in 38. Rodeo in 1942. Uh, so this is this is what they were doing then. And uh, you know what else? Barbers, Knoxville, summer of 1915, very much in that same wonderfully nostalgic and hopeful feeling of being on the front porch, communicating with your neighbors in a in a time of peace and tranquility and hope. That's the beauty of this music. And it's very important because there's not a lot of American ballet, especially at this time. Of course, you know, we have hundreds of years of tradition from France and from Russia. This is, it's still new, I think, even today for American ballet. And the music, it has that appeal, all the things that you were talking about. And really, it's one of my favorite works. I can certainly see why. Yeah. And I think it has become one of my favorite works after doing a deep dive into it. 
Okay. Well, thank you so much, Nicole, for sharing your insights. I feel like now I need to go listen to this and hear it totally differently. (laughs) And watch the ballet. Yes. (laughs) Thanks for listening to Classical Breakdown. For more information on this episode, visit the show notes page at classicalbreakdown.org. And if you have any comments or episode ideas, send me an email at classicalbreakdown at weta.org. I'm John Banther. Thanks for listening to Classical Breakdown from Classical WETA.